I want to start this morning with a story. I've probably told this story before, uh, but it's funny and I like it and I want to tell you again. So I'm six or seven years old. We live about a half mile from school. And maybe I was seven or eight. I was maybe a seven or eight years old. And I'm walking to school. It's a, you know, a, a, a time of the year like this, a little bit chilly out. And it's trash day. <laughs> it's trash day. And I, I, was, I just love trash day because people would throw out non-trash items that I was always uh, eager to discover. <laughs> and so I'm going to school one day, just little, you know, seven, eight-year-old David, and uh, we get about, I get about halfway to school, and somebody has laid aside for me a, a large bag of popcorn that's still about half full. <laughs> I was a big fan of popcorn. <laughs> I was a big fan of popcorn. And uh, so I, it, clear, it was popcorn. It looked amazing, you know. So I was just like, thanks be to God for his uh, extraordinary gift. I pick up the bag, and I'm, now I'm just excited, right? I'm, this, is the, this is a banner day for me. This is the day where I show up in class with all this popcorn for my friends, and, and I'm just going to eat this pie. You know, I'm just so, I'm just, oh, I'm just, you know, bouncing. And I'm approaching the church school complex that we little Baptists had there. And uh, my dad's got an office on the lower level, and he would see the, he, would, he could look down the driveway and say, well, what's da- there's David, what's he carrying? What's he carrying? And so as I get closer, he's, what, some kind of bag, some kind of white thing, what's going on there? And then he comes out and greets me, <clears throat> and, you know, what's his question? Where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? That's our question this morning as well. Where'd you get that? Where did Paul get his gospel? We've been looking at the gospel message. Look with me at Galatians 1.3. The gospel message of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been looking at this the last couple of weeks and seeing how the book of Galatians, Paul is trying to convince the Galatians that the new creation work of God through Christ, that the peace that they themselves all want, the God's own shalom delivered to us by the Spirit, that that thing is not going to come about by any other means except grace alone. Today, I think, is Reformation Sunday, so I should say grace alone, the, the, the cry of the Reformation Fathers. That's the only way that that is going to come to be. The only way the beautiful community that you and I want to be a part of is going to come into existence. The only way that you and I are going to experience the kind of peace that we maybe have had tastes of and want to live with is going to be by the grace of God. It's only this gospel message. Verse 3 goes into verse 4. Gospel summary here. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the judgment this present evil age deserves according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What does it take to be freed from sins? What does it take to escape the judgment our sins deserves? What does it take to escape the sense of continual lingering regret that our sins inflict upon us? What does it take to escape the hopelessness of thinking that I've done these things or these things have happened to me and there's no redemption available? What does it take to be free from those things? What does it take to escape from the wrath to come, the judgment that this world deserves? What does it take to be delivered from its pressure and stain? 
What does it take to enter into the fellowship of the saints, to the communion of God, to that new Edenic relationship with the Father in the life of the Spirit? What it takes is what Jesus did, and that's all. All of that. Jesus did it, and it's done. Well, that sounds really good, Paul. That sounds really good, but just a quick question, right? Where did you get this gospel message? This doesn't sound like anything I've heard before. It sure sounds good, but it sounds maybe a little too good to be true. This is the big question of this text, our text this morning. Where is this gospel from? Where is the gospel that Paul preaches from? You know, so much depends on the gospel, as we've seen. Paul's, he's putting everything on the gospel. Everything depends on the gospel. So we should know where it's from. Where did Paul get his gospel? That's the question this morning. You know, you've got you to appreciate it from their perspective, right? Why should, they, why should they trust the gospel Paul preached and not the more sensible gospel of the troublers? We talked about these guys yesterday, or last Sunday, yesterday for me, last Sunday for you. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, the gospel of the troublers is intuitive for us. Well, praise God, Jesus died for our sins, and what do we have to do? Surely we have to do something, such sinners as we are, so stained by this world. Of course we have to do something, some, some extraordinary act of penance. Sure, we have, to, we have to toss somebody from our village into the volcano, right? We have to kill some livestock. We have to put some kind of number of bowls of rice before this image. Like, surely we have to do something that just makes sense. The gospel of, no, 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 you're fine, you're done, you're in. Do you accept Jesus? Do you believe him? Okay, good, come on. Why should they trust Paul. This is, a, this is a continual kind of question. Now, we don't really ask it in this exact form quite so often anymore, but it's a very modern question all the same. You know, you can't watch a History Channel for more than like 24 hours continuously without some kind of hour-long documentary about, oh, how the Gospels have been changed by human teaching, how the, how the, the real story of Jesus or some other such nonsense, right? Because we're so, we're so con- where is it from? And no matter where your culture or location in that culture is, there's always some other alternative to the gospel that looks more reasonable to you. You know? Well, we found the real teachings of Jesus. They're all the stuff that we like. Oh, okay, wow, really? Okay, good. Thank you. You know, like, there's always some other version of the gospel that makes better sense to us. So where did Paul get this ridiculous, extraordinary gospel from? Look at me at verse 10. We pick up here with verse 10. Paul says, Am I now seeking the approval of man? Notice the repeated refrain here, the approval of man or of God. Am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So we can kind of hear in that an implied accusation. That there were people among the troublers who were saying, Paul's just a man pleaser, meaning he's a compromiser. Right, why is Paul removing the Jewish identity markers and saying Gentiles don't have to be circumcised, they don't have to keep the law of Moses? Why would he be doing that? Because he wants to make it easier for them 
to think that they're saved. He wants to get more converts. He wants to build up his statistics. He's trying to make it easier for people. Right? But what about holiness? Hmm? What about holiness? What about a commitment? Show me your commitment to Jesus. I don't know. Right? This, this gospel of Paul, it doesn't sound like the other gods we know. It doesn't sound like the other gods we know. This is the only God, right? Every other God, every other God, including Instagram and Facebook and the algorithm, demands that you love them first. Oh, you want to be my worshiper? You want to get likes and follows and shares, right? Well, you got to love me first. You got to do something for me. This is the only God, the only gospel that says he loves us first. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, he lays his life down. This is the only one, right? So this is not like the other gods that we're familiar with because this gospel, of course, is not from around here. But this is a challenge for us today as it was back then. And so Paul goes on in verse 11 to really emphasize, notice the uh, emphatic notness of these verses. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me, that's the subject here that we're talking about. He says, it's not man's gospel. I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Not is a big theme in chapter 1. We see this up in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from man, nor through men. He's really emphasizing that he did not get his apostleship or his gospel from human teaching and other people. Verse 16, he continues, at the end of verse 16, he says, after he was saved, after he met Jesus, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I grow up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. In verse 19, when he does go up to Jerusalem after a couple of years, he says, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So he's really emphasizing this negative in order to underline the absolute source of his gospel in verse 12. I received this gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was revealed to me by God. That's how I got this gospel. I want you to keep your finger here in Galatians and now turn back to Acts chapter 9. That would be helpful for us as Paul recounts his testimony to actually go back and read his testimony together and also think about that, that little time in his life when God revealed Jesus Christ to Paul. So let's go back to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. This is not going to be too long of a reading, but a little bit of a reading, okay? In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, and Paul alludes to this as we heard Anita read, that he was uh, violently seeking to destroy the church. This is, this is part of that story here. Chapter 9, verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Threats and murder. <laughs> you catch that? He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is the Christian way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. 
And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But now rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him, and I'll remark on this later, so take note of this. The men who were with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So Jesus reveals himself to Saul, to Paul. And now he's in Damascus, and for three days he can't see anything. He won't eat anything. And it doesn't say this in the text, but I like to imagine that he's, he's essentially sitting there in silence, not eating, not drinking, can't see anything. What's he doing? He's thinking. And I'll skip down to verse 17. So, so Jesus speaks to a guy named Ananias and says, I want you to go pray for Saul and baptize him. And bring him into the church. And so Ananias, verse 17, departed and entered the house where Saul was. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, but immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, Jesus is the Son of God. I just love that vision, that that, that image of Saul, his, his whole life is dedicated to extinguishing the message of Jesus, the voice of Jesus on this world. And Jesus meets him. And for three days, no food, no drink, no sight, sitting there thinking. And after he, he's healed, he eats, he's baptized. I just imagine on the fourth day, he walks into the synagogue and he's got a message. And his message is, Jesus is the Son of God. This message came to Saul through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And as he says later here in Galatians, he didn't consult with anybody. There was, he was preaching before he talked to anybody about this. Because God had given them this this understanding about who Jesus is. Paul got the gospel that he preached from God. Now, Paul's not the only person, maybe even that you know, to have received a message from God for the world. Right? A lot of people have claimed to have gotten some kind of message from God. So what proof is there? How can we believe this claim of the divine origin of the gospel that Paul preaches? And so Paul goes on and he gives us proof. First of all, his story is proof. Look at the contrast between verses 13 and 14 and verse 24. Verse 23. So look with me in verse 13. Paul says, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But now look at verse 23. 
the churches of Judea were now saying that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. This is a huge historical proof for the divine origins of the gospel, for Paul's claim to the divine origins of the gospel. Right, I want you to imagine the story. Right, Paul starts off, he starts out as a person who finds his entire identity, his entire life purpose, even a sense of calling from God in violently seeking to destroy Christians and the church, including, let's not forget, the apostles, of course, they're the top 10 most, top 11 most wanted. Then something happens. And now, Saul takes his, Paul takes his entire identity, his entire life purpose, his entire sense of, again, a, a sense of God is calling him to do what? To preach Jesus and build the church together with the apostles even being persecuted for it. What happened? And Paul says, what do you think? What else could have happened? I met Jesus and God revealed His grace to me. That's what happened. I want to pause for a moment here. And... uh, Help you, do a, help you learn how to do history a little bit. Got any fans of, of history, reading history, watching historical stuff? We got some history buffs. Right, so how do you do good history? A lot of us approach the Bible as bad historians. A lot of people handle the gospel message, ha- handle the stories of Paul as bad historians. And I just want you to think about this for a minute, that the, the stories of the Bible happened within a thickly historical social world, meaning right, Paul had a family. Maybe mom, dad, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, cousins. He had a family. He had friends. Like just, just start thinking about his social world. Paul was a top student at Tarsus, his hometown. He was a top student in Jerusalem. Right, hundreds of people in a variety of different social social centers knew Paul well. Thousands of people knew of Paul. I mean, think about your own life, right? Your your uh, childhood acquaintances, your co- your first job, your college acquaintances, your from this church, from that church, right? You you accumulate these people that know you, know you fairly well. We know from Paul's own testimony, at least, that Paul was a, he was a good student and he was a uh, passionate loudmouth, right? He wanted to be the number one Pharisee in training in his school, which means that everybody knew this guy. Not everybody liked this guy. Everybody knew this guy. Now, also, with Paul on the road to Damascus are other people probably his buddies who were with them in this quest to be the top Pharisees in Judaism. They've got their friends. They've got family. They've got their own social worlds, right? So Paul's encounter with Jesus was witnessed as was witnessed his absolute evaporation from all of his previous social places. He stopped showing up 
at work. He never went back to school. He didn't go to a family gathering for three years. You don't think that caught everybody's attention? Everybody heard about this hot-headed, loud-mouthed Pharisee student who was going to go murder and, and capture and put in prison these other Jews, and then he just disappears. Everyone knew this thing. Right? Everybody would have known it. Everybody. Paul, and there's, there's no record of anyone denying Paul's transformation or claiming that he made these things up. It was so well known that Paul appeals to this encounter and his transformation in legal trials in the book of Acts. And in two different places, he responds to his accusers before the Roman tribunals saying, they can tell you this if they're willing to. Whether they were willing to or not, we don't know, but it's, it, it's the sort of thing that could easily have been found out because so many people knew about it. Or you could just claim, well, that didn't happen. But so many people knew about it. You couldn't claim, no, this didn't happen. So from our position, we read the story of Paul and we think, well, I don't know Paul. It's, we can find it, people can find it hard to, to buy into these claims and these stories. But the apostles knew Paul. Think about this for a second. The apostles knew Paul before and after. The people who are now trying to stone Paul to death, they knew him before and after. Right? So everybody Paul knew was an enemy of his at some point in his life. Right? And you remember your enemies. So to deny Paul's testimony here is not just to say, well, the Bible's not telling the truth. It's to deny the intelligence of entire metropolitan communities in the ancient world. It's to deny and to ignore the, the normal operation of the flow of information, the transmission of stories through social networks. It's just to deny the human experience, at, really at a fundamental level. And that's just bad, unimaginative history. So I want to try to just pause for a second here and say what Paul's referring to here, if we are going to look at this just as normal people thinking about that in even just a loose understanding of the context that it happened in, we can see that this is a, a powerful historical argument for Paul's claims. And now let's look at that same claim, his claim uh, to have been transformed by this encounter with Jesus. Let's look at it from the other perspective. And Paul gives us this as well. The second proof here is his ministry. Look at verse 22. I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute... What's that next word? Say that word to yourself. Us. I think Brian said it. Anybody else say it? He who persecuted, say it. Say, us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So think about, the, think about that St. Paul's story, but from the apostles' point of view, from the church's point of view, right? Everybody who was a Christian knew Paul, because this guy's trying to kill us, right? Like, if there was a guy in our region of Wisconsin who was like, I am, you know, he's on all the social media, I am making it my life goal, 
I have authorization from the governor to kill Christians or put them in prison. We would know that guy's name. And what would we be doing at our gatherings? We'd be saying, oh, Lord God, smite that fool. We probably wouldn't say it quite like that. We'd say, oh, Lord, please protect us from this man who has declared himself to be your enemy and ours. Please, we would, we would pray imprecatory psalms. We would say, send him into the pit that he's digging. Make sure that he can't get to us. Stop all of his activities, right? So we're praying against Saul. We're praying against Paul. And then, something happens. Something happens, and now when we gather we praise God for Paul. And we love to hear stories of what he's preaching and how he's doing. Right? How did that happen? How could we be so convinced to love and rejoice in what God's doing in Paul's life? And Paul would say, because how do you think? I met Jesus. And God revealed his grace to me. The point here this morning is that Paul's life and early ministry prove that his gospel is from God. You know, nothing else can have accounted for those profound changes. You know, one of the things that we're not going to reflect on much here, but Paul emphasizes a great deal is how little contact he had with the apostles. We see this in verse 16, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Verse 17, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Verse 19, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. You know, Paul's, he's, he's preaching Jesus for years without having met the apostles. You know, we actually know from Acts 9 that when Paul first met the apostles, it was pretty dicey because you know what everybody thought Paul was doing? They all thought it was a trap. And it took Barnabas, who we're going to meet in Galatians 2, to begin to kind of bring him into the network, the, the, the hierarchy to meet these guys. Right? The apostles didn't give Paul his gospel. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. And I'm sure the feelings were complicated on his end too as he thought about sitting under the feet of these apostles whom he was recently trying to incarcerate. So what we get from Galatians 1, 10 to 24 is this truth, that the gospel is not a human idea, it's from God. The gospel, friends, is not an inference from a chain of evidence or reasoning. It is not a deduction. It is not one among other reasonable theories of human religion. It goes against, in fact, every other religion at all points of ideas and motivation. The gospel is completely different. And so the big idea this morning is that the gospel message is from God. Now we're just going to soak in that for a few minutes. The gospel message is from God. It is not from around here. And the primary consequence of that truth is what we see in Paul's life, which is that the gospel message transforms what it touches. I want you to imagine with me Paul on his donkey on the road to Damascus. And it says, he says that light shone all around me. Just, you know, it's kind of... A UFO kind of moment, like a little tractor beam kind of, that's what is in my mind, hits Paul. The light hits him. God's word is like light compared to light throughout Scripture. And what light touches, it affects. 
I had to double check on Wikipedia, but uh, I seem to remember from high school that light is two things, right? It is a wave, and it is a, a thing of particles. Right? It's a wave and a particle. So it, it, is, uh, it is hitting us with energy and with substance, moving us, changing us when it hits us. And this is what God's word is like. It's like, it's pushing us and it's delivering things to us that we need and it's moving us. That's what happened to Paul. He got hit with the, not the tractor beam itself, but the word of God hit him like light and changed and transformed his life. And that's what it does for us as well. The word of God that comes into our life is able to give us the hope and the confidence that our sins are forgiven. To know that through Jesus we are transferred out of this present evil age and into the age of the Spirit of God. To know that now we are pleasing to the Lord and living according to His will. It's able to deliver to us the grace that we need so that we can be at peace. This is what the Word of God can bring to us. The gospel message is from God, and so, therefore, it transforms us. Now, for us, then, the challenge is what Paul says in verse 12. He says, I did not receive the gospel from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For us to receive it as the message of God. To receive it for what it really is. And I get this phrase from Paul writing to the Thessalonian church where Paul says to them, we thank God constantly that when you received God's message, you accepted it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which is at work among you who believe. It's going to transform us, right? But the point here is that this is the word of God. It is not a human message. And so the challenge, the challenge for every single one of us every single day is to view the gospel appropriately and to treat it appropriately in our lives. Do we see the gospel message as God's message? Let's play a little bit with words for a second here. You know, uh, we use expressions like, well, it's good to know what? Which is, is this good to know? It's good to know. It's good to be informed. It's good to stay informed. What's, what is it good to know? What is it good to stay informed about? Well, the expression knowledge has power. It's good to stay informed. It's good to know because knowledge has power. What, not, what knowledge has power? What is it good to actually stay informed about? Is... What we are eagerly knowing in our lives, is it good for us? You know, after 10 years of binging Netflix, are we sweeter people? After 15 years of YouTube videos, are we kinder? Are we gooder? Are we better? Are we? Is it good to, is it good to know those things? What is good to know? What is good that when you know it, it's like honey. Or what, when you know it, makes you more bitter? 
What is good to stay informed about? Stay up to date with? Is the news substantially different now than it was 20 years ago? Or is it still wars and rumors of wars and political infighting and backstabbing and scandals and celebrities, this or that? Are we, are we being informed or is this being regurgitated? Are we eating it, regurgitating it? Is that what this is? What knowledge really has power? Everybody's so connected to, to knowing certain things, but what, is, what power is it actually giving them to be transformed or to make transformation in their life? What, you know, what is really news? What is really new? You know, Lamentations 3.23, Jeremiah says, he says, the Lord's mercies are new every day. Every day. God sends out a message, and it's new every day. And that message is loaded with goodness for sinners, and it's loaded with power for those who need hope. And it comes to us fresh every day. You don't know it like you need to know it for today. You knew it. You need to know it. This is the message of God. The word of the God, of your God and mine. And we need to see it that way. And if so, then to treat it that way. How do we treat the gospel? How do we treat the gospel? You know, is it something that's good to have known or something that, is, that we want to know better? And if we want to know it better, let me just suggest this to you. Feed more of your life into it. Right? I bet everybody here could pass a, a test on the principles of the gospel, or the contents of the gospel. But that's not how you get to know it better. Because I need to know the gospel differently at 42 than I did at 32. Different at 32 than I did at 22. Different at 22 than I'm going to need to know it at 52. We need to know the gospel. Every day, we're throwing different things. What about this sin? Gospel. What about this thing that person did to me? What about this thing that I'm hearing about in this present evil age? What about that? We're throwing everything that comes into our life into contact with the gospel and so getting to know it more and more. So how do we treat the gospel? We should want to be served by the gospel. The gospel wants to serve us. This is what God has given it to us for, to be served by the gospel You know, as sins, as this world affects us always more and more uniquely every day, all of those things, when we bring them into contact with the gospel, help us appreciate Jesus more. Treating the gospel well also means serving it so that others see it. This is what Paul's doing here. He's telling his story. And he's not just telling the good parts, right? Right, his testimony isn't, well, I met Jesus and now I'm running an auto dealership in five states. You know, like, that's not his story. Just like, hey, I met Jesus, and now I've got a lot of money. Hey, I met Jesus, and everything's great. It was, hey, I was the worst, and I met Jesus. And it's been complicated. But here I am. It's a, it's a whole story that Paul tells us. And that's all right. You've got a whole story too, don't you? People don't end up in these uh, chilled seats if they don't have a whole story. 
You got a whole story. And the Lord wants us to share it. And to share this story with, let me just end with this, with expectancy. What do you expect the gospel to do in your life and the life of others? We live with the gospel with expectancy because this is from God. And God is with this thing. You know, every single one of us and every single person you know is a version of the Apostle Paul. That is, you're in pain, causing pain through what you're doing or what you're failing to do. This is Paul's story. And Jesus calls him out on it. Paul, he, he tells his conversion story a couple times in the book of Acts. And in one of those accounts, he says something that he doesn't tell in the other stories. He says that after Jesus tells him, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, that the Lord says to him, and I wonder if this was a little quieter or after a minute, the, Jesus says to Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the ox goads. Ox goads, I don't know, ancient agriculture, right? It's like some kind of thing that they had with a nail to like get the oxen going. And if an oxen was being bad and he kicked against it, he just sent the nail deeper into his flesh. And Jesus was saying, I see what you're doing. I see the pain that you're in. I see the pain that all of your foolishness is causing you and others. And it's hard, isn't it? But I have the solution. Grace to you and peace. Grace that can be with your spirit. And I love this. I want you again to put you back in that, on that little bamboo mat or whatever in a corner of, of that house where Paul sat blind and hungry and quiet for three days. And while Paul sat there thinking about Jesus, all he did was sit there thinking about Jesus and his entire life changed. And his entire world changed. And our world's changed. The gospel is the seed that produces the new creation shalom that we long for. Where's the gospel from? The gospel is not from around here, which is why it and it alone can give us the hope that we need. It's why we love it. It's why it works. Why it worked for Paul. Why it works for me and you. And why it will work for them as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we join with the saints of old and the saints across the world now as we lift up praise for your word. We thank you, Lord, for speaking to us, for shining your light on us, for giving us ears to hear and hearts to receive this. We praise you, God, for being a God who speaks and who gives us such wonderful news. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in your word. And so, Lord, for us, for all of us with our hopeless things, give us the courage that we need, the faith that we need to feed them into the gospel. To do the work, to think like Paul in that quiet corner about what does Jesus mean for this? What does this mean? mean about Jesus.
And Lord, would you stir our hearts to love and to praise you and to love and serve others by sharing these good things with them. Lord, we thank you for this message. It is your message that you have revealed to us. And help us to, to receive it as such and to treat it as such. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.